welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw, and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we're doing a very long-awaited episode on The Matrix, but before we go into that, just a reminder that we have a book club episode coming out. Uh, Morgan, what day is that coming out on? That will be on August 7th. Okay, so we are reading North and South uh, by Elizabeth Gaskell right now. Um, It is a story about a young Southern English girl whose family has to move to the dastardly, terrifying industrial North in Victorian England and how, you know, the culture clash and then she meets a gentleman. I have only just reached the part where she meets a gentleman, but we are doing regular update posts on Patreon at the moment. Morgan has written the first one because unlike me, she remembered the reading deadline. So don't (laughs) feel bad if you didn't start reading until recently or indeed after this episode. It's going to be really fun. I'm enjoying this book very much so far. But yeah, North and South, join us. And uh, now to something very different, which is The Matrix. This is another uh, 20-year anniversary movie, came out in 1999, um, and it's the landmark movie directed by Lana and Lily Wachowski, starring Keanu Reeves as Neo, a disaffected hacker who discovers the world he lives in is actually a dystopian simulated reality. Also stars Lawrence Fishburne and Carrie-Anne Moss as revolutionaries trying to dismantle the system. And they're fighting against Hugo Weaving, playing the dastardly Agent Smith. And The Matrix remains one of the most influential blockbusters in movie history. It's also a personal favourite of mine, and I love the Wachowskis. Morgan, you just saw this film for the first time. I did. Uh, I saw it in a cinema in the first row with a mutual friend of ours. We did not remember that it had not had assigned seating, so we arrived very <laughs> shortly before it began, and we're like, oh, I see. And we're in the first row. Touch Keanu's face. <laughs> it was actually kind of a perfect movie to see in the first row because you're just, like, craning your neck and it's all happening right in front of you. But yeah, it was kind of crazy. I had never seen this film. It came out when I was nine years old, so I was too young to see it at the time. I don't remember exactly it coming out, but I remember it being a huge topic of conversation amongst uh, kids our age for the few years around that period. And Mm -hmm. obviously then the sequels came out. And so for a period of time, it definitely had this kind of forbidden fruit quality where I was like, oh, the Matrix. It was this, you know, you didn't know exactly what was going on, but it was like this thing that people were talking about. Uh, My mother just reminded me that my uh, neighbor growing up, who was my best friend at the time, saw it at a birthday party right after it came out on video and his mother freaked out because he was like nine or ten and (laughs) you probably shouldn't see this if you're nine or ten that's pretty bad but it's not as bad as the sleepover where i was shown hannibal and silence of the lambs as an 11 year old so correct i agree (laughs) um but it definitely had this sort of cultural cachet to kids yeah but i didn't at that point really understand it then by the time i kind of hit high school the sequels had come out and they were not well received at all. And you had all the sort of teenage boys who would do the like thought experiment thing. Anytime anyone had anything in this realm in conversation, which was like, but what if we're all in the matrix? None of this is real. And so I was kind of like, please stop, please stop this. Completely reasonable. Yes. (laughs) And we'll talk about this more at the end in terms of like how the movie has changed in terms of its perception and how it's been received over the years. But You know, when this came out, it was definitely just like a boy movie, right? Like that was the thing. It wasn't that you couldn't enjoy it if you weren't a boy, obviously, but that was definitely how my friends and I perceived it. And so I just sort of lost interest in it slightly, I think, as a as a teenager. And then by the time I was an adult, 
I thought I should see it at some point and then just never got around to it. So somehow I made it to the age of 29 years old without having ever seen The Matrix as like a film buff. So it was quite surreal to finally get to see this movie on the big screen with a bunch of people who were clearly like huge, huge fans of The Matrix. Um, And I loved it. It's awesome. Obviously. Great movie. Hot take. The Matrix is good. <laughs> I just That's my opinion in good 2019. Film. We can end the yes. podcast now. We've both agreed the film is good and there's nothing further to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> um, so why don't we start with you giving a little bit of background on the Wachowskis' careers up to the point where this comes out. Because this is the thing that really breaks them out in a big way, in a sort of blockbuster sense. Yeah, this is literally their second film which is Oh, I didn't realize it was that early. Yeah, so they obviously were like trying to make films for a while, but their first screenplay was for this movie called Assassins, where their screenplay was really heavily rewritten, but they did sell it and the film was made. Their first actual film that they directed is this movie called Bound, which is a lesbian thriller. It came out in 1996. It's like, it's not a big budget film. Um, It's quite interesting. A lot of Wachowski fans really, really love it and think it's just a really exciting film. I watched it and I was like, it's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, they they made that film in 96. And then in 99, The Matrix came out. And that was like a huge blockbuster movie. Not just that. It's from two directors, like very few people had heard of. It was very action heavy, which Bound was not. It had a very quirky sci-fi kind of philosophical concept and was heavily influenced by anime, which at that point was not part of the mainstream in America. So the fact that it got made at all is extraordinarily wild. I mean, obviously the film industry was very different in the 90s. I can only assume their pitching skills are phenomenal. Like there was a lot of stories about how detailed all of their work plans were for it. Like they made like a story Bible that had like, it was like every single shot in the film was perfectly meticulously set out. It was very, very kind of detailed planning stages. And it's a film with a lot of detail. Like there was a hell of a lot going on in this movie as well as just being a very crowd pleasing and easy to follow action film. Well, it's interesting in the context of the cyberpunk genre of movies in the 90s, which obviously is coming out of uh, literature earlier than that, because my memory of this as a literal child when it came out, but I think that this correlates to a degree with the wider public's conception of the movie, people who maybe were not following smaller films as much, is that this was just this sort of like, what the fuck? Oh my God, almost coming out of nowhere thing. And I think one what really is kind of genius about the film is that it is not sui generis in the sense that it's coming completely out of nowhere. It's building on movies like Hackers, Strange Days, which is a very, very weird Catherine Bigelow movie from, I think, 1994, starring um, Ray Fiennes, which features people putting these like weird nets on their heads, which allows them to do this like virtual reality thing. But the sort of scale and scope of the approach um, is just bigger than those films. And it has this sort of purity of emotion that is very typical of the Wachowskis that allows it to be accessible to the mainstream audience in a way that something like Strange Days, for instance, just like is not at all. So they balance between, you know, drawing on these other influences, including obviously the sort of Japanese stuff, which you'll talk about more, and blowing it up into a blockbuster accessible way that 
is really interesting and obviously was accessible because it made so much money and was hugely, hugely popular, which I just think is really smart. And I mean, it captured the zeitgeist perfectly, right? Yes. They were drawings from so much stuff, but like in a way that didn't feel plagiaristic and they were kind of bringing a lot of interesting things in in, in, in like a an, in, like an original way. But like, if you look at, I think movies that came out really shortly before that, like the year before Blade came out, which aesthetically has a lot in common and is the other movie that like made every edgy boy in the early 2000s wear a fucking calf length black leather jacket, which just FYI does not look good on anyone. <laughs> no, no one looks good in that. Keanu looks good in it and Blade looks good in it because they're very good looking <laughs> and they've got the right lighting. But anyway, um, yeah, so Blade and Dark City both came out that year. And yeah, Dark City is this really interesting movie called starring Rufus Sewell, which is not really cyberpunk. It's kind of noir fantasy sci-fi. It's thought to be one of the influences on Inception. So that's like another one that kind of falls under that. And also this was not Keanu's first cyberpunk film because he starred in Johnny Mnemonic in 1995, a film which even I have not seen. <laughs> but it's one of, it's, it's, a, it's a William Gibson adaptation. Um, and obviously William Gibson is like, the western ultimate cyberpunk writer like he he wrote um neuromancer and came up with a lot of terminology which is now sort of universal for the internet like i think you know the word cyber might even have been him i don't recall but um yeah so like it was of this zeitgeist but it's like i think watching this movie it is very dated in the sense that like the technology is clearly 1999 right like it's all based on payphones and cell phones that have like a giant stick coming out of them like fucking aerial cell phones but it works better than basically any contemporary movie manages to use the internet because films like filmmakers or at least most mainstream filmmakers have not figured out how to portray the way the internet is like an essential part of everyone's life now. Like sometimes you see in teen dramas and occasionally sitcoms, but like science fiction just can't handle it. And they're stuck now trying to repeat the successes of classic cyberpunk stories like this and Blade Runner which are from the 80s and 90s and are from before the internet was ubiquitous. And I just, yeah, like cyberpunk now is kind of seen as almost purely an aesthetic thing. And like there's a very huge video game franchise that's literally branded cyberpunk. The next game is going to have Keanu Reeves in it and there's been a lot of press attention to it. And it's also had a ton of criticism because it is just looking at like, oh, what if things looked like Blade Runner and you had like a robot arm? And it's not really kind of looking at the wider political messages of that genre. And this even though this film is not set in the same kind of future as Blade Runner, it's very much that's the kind of idea about outsiders fighting back against the man, which in this case is these robots who are using humans to basically to be their fuel. And every human is in a tank. It's a completely absurd premise, but like the general sort of power struggle is, oh, there's a bunch of edgy hackers who are the only people who like understand the true problems that are wrong with the world, which is something that is... I think probably inspired partly by um, there's these comics called The Invisibles, which were published kind of shortly before them. And they, along with cyberpunk anime, are like the two really big influences. Like they were this counterculture comics about this group of outsider rebels, very psychedelic, rebelling against authoritarianism. But, you know, they're queer. They're all taking a lot of drugs. Um, it's very violent. So, yeah, The Invisibles, read them. Morgan, save me before I keep rambling about all the influences. <laughs> Well, I think the difference between the cyberpunk stuff from this era and the 80s, so like the sort of classic material that you're talking about, and people trying to engage with the internet now in film and television is that 
when this was first kind of becoming a big thing, people were dealing with the existential questions about, like, what does this mean for us? How do we live digitally, etc. And in, you know, The Matrix, and then in other movies from this time, which, you know, you were pointing out before we started recording, the sort of, like, Gen X alienated man genre, which is not related to cyberpunk, but is very much related to this film, things like Fight Club and American Psycho, which, like, you very much see in this movie and in its approach to the sort of, like, boring life of people working in offices and just, like, the mundanity of existence in the city as, like, a bourgeois person. That was something that was, like, the big Gen X crisis in the creative consciousness, right? Like, that was the sort of fear of artists making movies of this period. I mean, like, Neo's human life before he finds out about The Matrix is so close to just the whole monologue you get from the protagonist in Fight Club about all the products he's buying to make sure that his apartment looks right. It's just, like, the only part of Neo's life where he's alive is, like, kind of the counterculture side where he's being a hacker. Right. And so The Matrix kind of melds those two things together. And I think that we are now in a phase where we are inextricably connected to our digital lives. I mean, our digital lives are our lives. The the stories you occasionally read about people being like, well, I just decided to go totally off the grid and I got rid of my smartphone and I don't have any social media pages anymore and I write letters only by hand on parchment by blah, blah, blah. Like, that's just not a practical way to live your life. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's at not this possible. point, it's basically like being a prepper. Right. <laughs> and so I think that that is actually much harder to dramatize. Well, I mean, dramatize in a literal sense in the it's hard to put that on film because it's all happening on devices. And so that's difficult to portray. But also, I don't think that we have in any way resolved how to deal with this because there are huge downsides to the fact that this is how we live, but we can't do anything about it. And so I think people in general are just kind of like, I don't know what to do about this. And so it is seeping into culture a little bit in a way that's very ambivalent but I think that people are mostly just kind of avoiding it because it's too difficult a problem I think the two best things that I have seen are um, the movie eighth grade that came out last year which really depicts well how fucked up this makes young people the like just the fact that you have to be on Instagram all the time and online all the time and you're comparing yourself to people which obviously is part of the teenage experience regardless but is really amplified by the internet. I thought that was really smart. By far the best thing dealing with this, however, which I think connects to this genre that we're talking about, is the movie Her by Spike Jones, which uh, many of you will be familiar with, but it's the one where Joaquin Phoenix plays this kind of disaffected guy, and he falls in love with the sort of AI operating system he buys, which is voiced by Scarlett Johansson. And that movie very much gets at both the sort of Gen X E, like, what am I doing with my life thing? And then also, what is technology doing to us? And how are we interacting with it? I would really highly recommend it. But um, I think that the reason that we are still kind of drawn to these older films is that they're coming at the problems that we're still dealing with from a slightly more earnest place, right? So 
this movie is looking at this sort of all the you know digital stuff that would become our lives and saying like oh my god this is kind of fucked up and it's doing it in a really sincere way because that's what the Wachowskis always do and so for me as someone who now is much far beyond this it is both really archaic like it's very much of the 90s in many ways but also there's this kind of willingness to articulate the problem that we are having in a way that I think we kind of aren't anymore, which is interesting because it does feel very current and also kind of out of date in this weird way, sort of an interesting middle ground that a lot of these movies found in this one in particular. All very well put. (laughs) So obviously this film has plenty of interesting themes to digest, especially if you're a stone teenage boy. But um, it is primarily an action movie and it is still incredibly iconic as an action film for a good reason. It is essentially a martial arts movie, which is already relatively rare in the West. You know, this is kind of coming off a period of like American action movies that were very butch. This film isn't particularly butch, like Keanu Reeves never has been. That's like not part of the characters that he plays. But this is like very explicitly taking inspiration in its action scenes from two sources, which would be Hong Kong kung fu movies, which use like a lot of wire work, which definitely wasn't something that was used in America until then, and also anime. So um, the kind of wire kung fu stuff is, is what it sounds like. You know, you have someone attached to a wire and it means they can kind of fly around, which adds like a lot more kind of dynamic visuals to this kind of hand-to-hand fight scene. And after this movie came out, it just became like a staple in loads of Hollywood movies. Like now, if you see any superhero film, the way they do any kind of fight scene is they have everyone on a wire, um, which obviously does not look as good as The Matrix. Um, But in terms of the anime influences, like I feel like most people who are fans of The Matrix, you're probably aware that it obviously does take a lot of inspiration from 90s action and sci-fi anime um specifically ghost in the shell which was like the biggest cyberpunk movie apart from blade runner i think like it's hugely influential and it was like massively popular at this point especially like every like anime nerd in america would have been watching this but it's not just like they've borrowed certain shots from that film like there's you can definitely see on youtube there's kind of oh compare and contrast these two scenes in the movies i believe they actually had to ask permission from the ghost in the shell people to use some parts of the film because they were coupled where they were like we just want to like directly copy you and they were like yeah it's great like i think this the matrix was actually very well received among anime filmmakers in japan i believe but it's actually kind of more subtle than just that like there's certain camera and editing techniques that are used which are first of all not known that much in the west at this point but also are very much to do with animation rather than live action and one of the things that I think you'll pick up on if you've watched a lot of kind of action-based anime is the way they choreograph the fight scenes where there's far more moments of kind of quiet and stillness and slow motion that you're likely to see in like a traditional American action movie so like that plays into the bullet time thing where the camera goes around people which is like famously one of the things they kind of invented for this film and is being like now used and everything but um it's kind of the the way there'll be like a moment where you know the fight's about to start and it'll just kind of be like a silent pause that gives you time to anticipate and kind of digest what's about about to happen and then it'll be like the beat drops and then the fight will start or that will happen kind of halfway through a combat scene so there's loads of kind of smaller cinematography choices and stuff which are so clearly anime inspired that are like much more complex than just being like oh we we took inspiration from ghost in the shell 
Yeah, I found the action really enjoyable to watch. I'm not someone who's particularly familiar with anime, so some of it, obviously, like, just anyone who is alive in America right now who has any familiarity with culture, like, even if you aren't familiar particularly with that stuff, like, the kung fu influence is very apparent in this movie, which I really enjoyed because it is such a breath of fresh air compared to most action movies that are made now. And, um the effects work that they do within the fight scenes, I think is really, really effective. I think this movie has aged incredibly well on a visual level. Some of the CGI stuff is bad, obviously, because it was made in 1999. But the only places where they're really overwhelmingly depending on that are some of the shots sort of outside the matrix where they're showing like the ship that they're living in from the outside as like a context thing. And there isn't a ton of that. And you're just sort of like, well, whatever, you know, this is this is an old movie, right? Whereas the stuff with the characters is a lot more done in a practical way or done with pretty subtle CGI that I think has aged pretty well. And I found that really refreshing. And I think that the combination of that and the fact that it's so unabashedly of the 90s was was fun. Like it's clearly, it has very much dated in the sense that it's obviously of its time, but it didn't feel... Like, I didn't feel thrown out of it particularly by, you know, effects stuff that didn't work. Obviously, we have talked before on this podcast about sort of practical versus digital effects and all movies that come out now, even the ones that are touted as being really practical effects driven, have a ton of CGI stuff in them. And that's fine. Like, it's not that, you know, digital effects are bad. They can be used really effectively. But I think this is a case where you see the value of doing stuff in a more practical way because you do have this sort of long shelf life in a way that something like Avatar, which we dislike for other reasons, but like it's amazing to me the fact that that movie was such a huge breakthrough at the time and I think looks really bad now. Whereas if you just uh, put Keanu Reeves up on a wire, it still looks good. <laughs> 20 years later, it's really fun. Um, the one thing that did take me out of it was there's a long sequence right at the end that's sort of the climax of the movie when Neo and Trinity have sort of are going back in to save Morpheus, the Lawrence Fishburne character, been captured, and Neo's finally sort of like, I've, I've figured out how to do all of this, and he's accepted that, you know, he's has these powers. And um, they basically just have, like, a bunch of guns and just shoot all of these people in this building <laughs> to like an unbelievable degree like the lobby practically collapses one of the most famous scenes from the movie <laughs> yeah and i mean i've seen clip, like little bits of clips of this before it is you know well known but it was jarring to me because there are guns in other parts of the film but because so much of it is dependent on the more sort of kung fu action stuff, which is just like more fun to watch. The fact that suddenly there was basically just this like orgy of gun violence, I found quite jarring. And it felt very much like this just very American, aren't these guns awesome? We can just shoot them so much. Like the way it is shot. I mean, that's one of the scenes that takes the most inspiration from Ghost in the Shell and anime. Well, well, let me tell you, as an American person, (laughs) yep. In uh, 2019, watching this, I was just like, mm, no, too no, many guns that, for you. Yeah, that was the one, and it's not like there's even it's even particularly violent because it's PG-13. They can't really show any blood. The biggest impact of the guns is honestly, and like the 
pillars of the lobby, which get just destroyed. So you're not seeing a ton of carnage, particularly. It's more that they really are displaying like the incredible might of these weapons in a way that feels very sort of like... I am a man with a phallus. Like, that's the... I mean, it's a man and a woman using the guns, but that's the vibe. It's just like, ah, these incredible things. And uh, I didn't like it because guns are bad. (laughs) You know, no thank you. And that was really the only thing I particularly, like, specifically did not like about the film was that it was sort of like, this is going on for a long time and um, nothing is being achieved storytelling-wise. It's literally just a bunch of guns for, like, minutes on end. And I think that... It just a lot has changed in 20 years since this came out in terms of our perception of that issue. And it was the only thing that I was yeah, sort I mean, of like, the most Ugh. popular mainstream action franchises in America are about cars, Fast and Furious, or superheroes, which by definition don't use guns. Like, yep. guns have gone out of vogue for the most part, unless it's an R-rated film. I mean, I believe this came out like two weeks before Columbine. I'm not saying there's any connection between them, but like it was just before... Yeah. The era in which we currently live. So that's my one critique of this movie, which otherwise I loved. So um, why don't we move on to talking about the sort of story stuff a little bit, which I just think it's amazing that this is a movie about like a chosen one character (laughs) who like, I mean, Keanu Reeves, as many of our listeners will know, is not a white man. He's of partial Asian American descent, but or Asian Canadian but uh he's definitely coded as a white man in this movie like that's the whole thing we were talking about before with fight club etc etc and so it really should be like unbearable that the whole setup of this movie is that they're looking for the chosen one and they find him and it's this like hacker dude who's just like i hate everything and is this like disaffected white guy and it's, it works. It's fine. Like when the Ready Player One came out, which I've not seen, but it's like that is basically the kind of the premise. It's, it's like, oh, we're both good at doing imaginary computer stuff and we're the chosen one. But it's like this film is a delight. And even now watching it with all of my cynicism, I think even if I watched it for the first time now, I'd have the same response as you because the tone they use for it, it just works. And it also doesn't feel sort of like Neo is like this self-aggrandizing figure and they do have like the right balance with the two characters around him. Like it's a very kind of archetypal cast. Like they have Morpheus, Lawrence Fishburne is the kind of classic sort of wise leader, mentor guy. And then they've got Carrie Ann Moss's Trinity, who is obviously incredible and she's a love interest. Um, I remember when I rewatched this a couple of years ago, I was like, wow, she's actually not in it as much as I remember. So <laughs> she's so great that you remember her and obviously she has bigger roles in the sequels. And the thing you were saying about sort of the way that Neo is coded as white or at least interpreted probably by most of the white audience in America as as white. It's interesting to kind of look at this cast list and be like, if this came out now, there would be so many dumb conversations about like the diversity of the cast. Because in this movie, the two white men in the film are both villains. And the cast in general is very diverse for like a blockbuster, but also there were actually quite a lot of movies in the 90s that had diverse casts and people just erase this from their memory because everyone likes to think of progression being a thing like the idea that things just progress steadily upwards in like a forward condition but this movie there's a ton of queer and trans subtext which we're going to talk about in in a minute it's a film where the wise mentor figure that everyone respects is a black man but he's not playing a stereotypical guy like he's he's like an interesting character that everyone thinks is cool and then 
the bad guys are very cut and dried. Like Cypher is the character who betrays them and it's just like this absolutely self-serving little worm he's a creep towards trinity and like he's just greedy and he's just the obvious desire to basically live a life of privilege under american capitalism and ignore all the problems around him and he kind of sells out his squad so he can get that from agent smith who is just like the ultimate cliche of the company man who's brutal and just wears a suit and has no interest in creativity or like freedom so it's pretty explicit material (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think it works because the movie is just so unbelievably sincere about what yes, it's doing. Sure. It's There's no sense of irony at any point about really anything. Which there never is in any Wachowski movie no. at all. Which is why like some people find some of them irritating. We've done an episode on Speed Racer, which Morgan hated, which is very unfortunate of her because Speed Racer is fantastic. But I think like if you look at kind of their whole filmography, all of their films are extremely sincere. Most of them have pretty explicit political themes apart from Speed Racer. And most of them are kind of about being an outsider, but kind of finding interconnectedness together, which is what Sense8, their Netflix show, was about like in a really obvious way. That was really kind of taking all the ideas they had in Cloud Atlas, exploring those in a more original and potentially less racist setting. <laughs> but um but yeah, Speed Racer is like the one that was like the least well received. And I think it's just because in that one it's obvious that the film is really sincere because it's like a corny children's movie. Whereas, you know, fucking V for Vendetta is just as cheesy and silly. It's just like it's about darker subject matter. So you've got that thing to balance it out and everyone in their mind could just be like, well, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think V for Vendetta was received like positively, but not. No, not glowingly. Like, I don't think many people are like, V for Vendetta is their finest work. I very much enjoy V for Vendetta, but I am aware (laughs) that it is silly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get started on Speed Racer. We've litigated that. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about that episode is one of the ones where we swapped and both forced the other to watch a film we knew the other one would never watch otherwise. And it was a great success because we both hated the other part of the movie. Um... But, I mean, back to Neo, I think, so the movie is really sincere. Neo is presented as an unbelievably unegotistical person Mm -hmm. and is resistant to the idea of him being, like, the chosen one basically throughout the entire length of the movie until the very end. And so you don't have someone who's particularly self-aggrandizing at all. He thinks he's just kind of a guy. So he is a guy. He's just a guy in the context of the movie who then at the very end is sort of like, oh, yes, he actually can do all this cool stuff. And he's played by Keanu Reeves. So, yeah, I mean, the thing is, you know, like the magic of Keanu Reeves, the original casting choice for this movie was Will Smith. And it is actually impossible to imagine this film with Will Smith, who is as big and as beloved a star recently he posted on youtube he was like oh here's why i turned down the role i didn't understand what the fuck this movie was meant to be about so instead i did wild wild west which obviously everyone knows is like a garbage movie whereas keanu reeves when like the wachowskis were making everyone on set like read these weighty tomes of philosophy like keanu reeves loves to read he is often spotted in independent bookstores picking up you know volumes of poetry so he was like yes i'd love to read simulacra and simulation it sounds fascinating (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing about Will Smith, who obviously is unbelievably charismatic, and I think, I mean, I obviously don't know Will Smith, I think his reputation as like a person is pretty good. I I really don't know either way, but I've never heard anything bad about him. But his screen persona is 
there's sort of an essential smarminess, right? He, his is a charisma of smarminess. Like, there's a slight sort of snarkiness to Well, him. sometimes he can do... Like, I feel like when he's doing the serious roles that he does, they are very much, like, sentimental films. Yes. And then when he's not doing, an, like, a gritty action film, all of his kind of lighter roles are indeed doing, like, a roguish wink. Right. <laughs> Which can be really enjoyable. It's, it like, that's why people go and see them. Like, it's it's meant to be fun, and I think often is fun. But... Neither of those modes, particularly, because he did, he got nominated for an Oscar for Ali, where he played Muhammad Ali, and mm-hmm. I think that movie's meant to be pretty good. I haven't seen it, but that also, again, from what I understand, is operating kind of on the mode you're describing, where it's like very sort of sentimental, and some of the other stuff he's done was bad in that way, like seven pounds. <laughs> but it's just impossible to imagine him in this, and he's like. Great movie star. He's really good on the screen, but it just wouldn't work at all. Whereas Keanu has this sort of, you know, you can project onto him. That's that is his great quality as a movie star. He can be really still and quiet. You know, he is a yes. beautiful, placid lake. And then there will be like the occasional really silly joke, which then <laughs> is almost more fun because it's so unexpected. I mean, he has a couple really dorky mo- moments in this movie that I was not anticipating and found really entertaining. And it just really, really works. And I mean, I love him in my own private Idaho, which is my favorite film of his that I've seen. And he's playing an asshole in that. So he can do that too. But it's, I mean, it's still in his sort of mode of slightly placid asshole. But it's not like he's always playing someone who you like or identify with. But he is very, very good at doing that kind of thing. And this movie is sort of the apex of that because he's he's playing a character who's supposed to be sort of the stand-in for the audience, obviously. And it just really, really works. He's really good in it. And he's surrounded by a cast of people who are all kind of more outwardly charismatic than he is. So it balances him out really well. So he can be this kind of like still figure. And then Lawrence Fishburne is not doing a loud performance as Morpheus, but he's doing a more kind of like Shakespearean performance in a way. He has like a powerful aura. Yes. Which some actors, because like he, and it's also like you can tell that it's something that he like switches on, you know? Because yeah. obviously we've all seen him in a variety of roles. Like he is one of the greats. But if you think about this film and also his role in Hannibal, in Hannibal, obviously he's playing like a much darker and more manipulative character, but they both are the kind of awareness of physicality, but also sort of the way the way that they are aware of their own power, like those two characters, and exerting that power over other people, not in a villainous way, is sort of, it's very nuanced, especially like for a film like this, where it's just like a fucking blockbuster mentor role. Like there's so many people who just half-ass their way through these, you know? And that's the reason why, as well as the fact that he's very stylish, but that is the reason why like that is such an iconic character. Like at least 50% of all the character stuff in this is just like, what a great outfit, which is fine. (laughs) That's how Star Wars works too. (laughs) Yes. And then Carrie Ann Moss, I mean, that character is also written in a very simple way, which I don't mean to say bad way. It's just like the whole movie is very archetypal, right? And a lot of what is happening with her is also coming from the clothes, which, as you say, is fine. (laughs) They're very good clothes. But she also just has this really compelling screen presence and is very good at all the stunts, too, which really helps. And 
yeah, she's not in the movie constantly at all, but I think she's in it enough that you really feel her presence very strongly. I mean, this movie, like, made her career. And even now, people are like, oh, it's Trinity from The Matrix. And it's not like she's not fucking made any films since then. She's been, like, working steadily the whole time. Right, but it's kind of crazy she didn't become, like, a huge movie star. I mean, she's worked a lot, but... Yeah, I agree. It's not, you know, she's no Keanu, right? And she's really incredible. I wonder if it's one of those things where it's like, she's not warm. (laughs) Oh, I'm certain that that's what it is, which is ridiculous because she's actually is, I think, quite warm in this, but in a not like maternal way, right? But the romance, I think, is also really compelling because it's not really structured as a romance exactly. She's just like in love with Neo and you totally get it because who wouldn't? (laughs) Um, But he doesn't pursue her at all. And so it's just, it's just coming from her character, but in a way that feels very genuine, like everything in the movie feels quite genuine. Right. I mean, I think there's also like something that I think I've probably talked about in a bunch of episodes, but it's definitely the case that you see a lot of mainstream films where the film doesn't address why or whether the male protagonist is attractive it's just sort of like the romance structure is there i mean obviously i'm talking about like straight romances but like in this kind of blockbuster movie it's like if you follow the right beats then it's like voila we've reached the conclusion of the love story but in this even though like morgan said it's a very simple kind of love story and like their relationship develops just like virtually out of nowhere to be honest it's still like you can tell that Neo is attractive and that she finds him attractive and that she's surrounded by kind of all this danger and occasionally some less than pleasant people and he's just sort of this sort of gentle appealing beautiful figure and that kind of goes beyond the fact that he's really good looking but also he's really good looking so (laughs) yes as people comment on in the movie yeah like everyone's like oh he's pretty (laughs) yeah which is True. also a rarity, bizarrely. Because, like, of course everyone in a fucking movie is good-looking. But it's like, in this film, he's canonically good-looking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, it, you just... All all true, hard to argue with any of the logic. Um, I mean, everything we're talking about with the romance, it's interesting that the, the, the movie... Like, the movie has just had so many lives since it came out and when it came out. Because, I mean, it would have been interesting to have been sort of in the film world discourse at the time, which obviously was very different Mm -hmm. than it is now in terms of just like practical function, in terms of what people were saying about this movie and how it was being discussed in terms of gender. Because as someone watching it for the first time now, I found it really enjoyable on that level right like there's there are only two female characters really in the movie but it didn't feel overwhelmingly masculine right and i would be curious to know what women thought about it at the time but again the sort of public perception obviously was very much like boy movie lots of guns etc etc i mean obviously like if you were like an alternate girl you would be like love trinity (laughs) right exactly um and i remember her being like a very Mm. you know an iconic figure as well but um certainly i no one except maybe some really really wicked people in 1999 would have anticipated the sort of shift that we've now had which is that 
obviously both the Wachowskis came out as trans and now one of the sort of primary readings of this film amongst film people is that it's sort of an allegory for trans issues and watching it for the first time I was like oh yes yep that's all all there correct (laughs) yeah so it's like kind of the idea of him Neo sort of waking up into realizing a new self there's so many kind of details that are pointed out in a really interesting way that just feels so obvious now but like weren't necessarily intentional at the time like the filmmakers now are like yes we accept this reading and we love it but um I will link to there's a really good kind of comic about it that I will link to in the show notes but basically it's sort of like there's details like you know once Neo understands about the Matrix like he takes on the name Neo rather than his original name which was Mr. Anderson which is literally just like my name is Mr. Son of Man and I don't have a first name (laughs) and like the only people who use that name are the agents So it's like the agents are like, we're only going to identify you as your dead name. One of the secondary characters who who is in the team with Trinity is Switch, who's the woman with blonde hair who wears kind of a a tube top. And like, obviously she's a relatively minor character, but that character originally was meant to uh, change gender when they go into the Matrix. So it's it's like um, in the film, there's this idea that obviously you have your physical body and then when you're in the Matrix, you're... Uh, kind of cyber body is basically the same but like it's kind of your internal image so like when Neo comes out of the matrix like his real body is really weak and he's not got any hair and stuff like that but when he's in the matrix he's got hair because that's how he thinks of himself and this would be kind of the idea of like self-perception there were definitely kind of hints in this character like maybe her top looks like it might be a binder or she's got short hair which is kind of very subtextual material but that was kind of in there in the original script and it would have been really cool for that to be there now but you know it wasn't but yeah there's a lot of different kind of elements of that story which is sort of about realizing things about yourself and the world and sort of changing yourself and then trying to change the world to fit that all together which is also unfortunately the mindset behind its much less valid and coherent interpretation which is the concept of the red pill which takes one scene from the movie and is like wow isn't this a great idea and then just uh, really just shits all over the Wachowski's entire political and feminist uh, history as filmmakers um but yeah it's kind of the the whole like sexist reddit internet men who are like yeah once you take the red pill you'll realize that the world is run by women and we're all just oppressed and it's like no it really works as an allegory for getting woke about any issue, but I'm pretty sure this is like a hilariously wrong one. Well, the sort of weird paradox of all of these disaffected Gen X man movies from this time is that you can kind of twist them around. Oh, yeah. I mean, right? there's just like, they're so general. I mean, obviously this was not their intention, and I think it do- the reading obviously does not work for the movie. I'm not trying to defend these people. But... All the stuff about, like, only the hackers understand the, what, what's really going on, and et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of primed for this oh, bullshit, yeah, for sure. right? Like, for, like, conspiracy theory Reddit men, that is yes. the demo. And, like, Fight Club, obviously, has had a long history <laughs> of this nonsense. And I'm not even someone, I mean, I've only seen Fight Club once, and it was, like, I like Fight Club, ago. but the cultural results are hilarious. Right. <laughs> I didn't love it at the time. I liked it fine. It's not trying to do what the effect was. But if you watch it, you're sort of like, I can see where they got this, right? I mean, there's a famous quote from Fincher, who directed it, obviously, saying, he said to his daughter or someone, it was like, yeah, if like your boyfriend says Fight Club is his best, is his favorite movie, like dump him immediately. <laughs> and the sort of sense of disaffectedness that 
many people were feeling at that time, and obviously we continue to be disaffected. Millennials have this problem too. For different but that, reasons. Yes. It's like nowadays watch this film, you're like, my God, you got a steady office job. <laughs> right. <laughs> like that kind of thing that you see in these 90s movies, which obviously is affecting a wider swath of people than like just these men who are like, ugh, can speak directly to them also in a way that's sort of like, ugh. I think the best movie on that level is definitely American Psycho because if you misinterpret that one, (laughs) you are a psychopath. Like there's just no way to do it. Although Wall Street guys fucking love that book. I've never read American Psycho. I've only seen the film, but like the book remains incredibly popular with the people that it is satirizing. I think the movie, you really would have to work hard to, you know. I've also not read the book, but I feel like the the movie is kind of often used as one of those classic examples where a female director added a certain je ne sais quoi to the source material. Correct. Exactly. And I mean, I don't think there's anything like wrong with the Matrix on this level. It is certainly not the Wachowski's fault that this has happened. But I think it, in a way, reveals something interesting about all of these movies that were being made at this time, that there was this sort of slightly weird ambivalence going on in the culture that then these people now 20 years later have jumped on and misinterpreted. Yeah, it was like around halfway through the movie, I was sort of playing out both interpretations in my head, right? Because I knew that these were both like things that happened on the internet. And I was like, oh, God, you really can do both. And then the movie goes in a different direction. And you're like, no, you're stupid. But there's enough there that I could sort of I was like, oh, yes, I see how these people can like trick themselves into thinking that this is validating them. Specifically, the red people, red pill people, just to be clear. Oh, yes, that is obviously (laughs) what I mean. Which... uh, you know, in the context of the wider filmography, is just like, oh my god. It's just absurd. So that's very frustrating. But in terms of, like, just internet phenomena around pieces of pop culture, it's it's like everyone who's seen The Matrix. It's just, like, such a ubiquitous formative cultural object for people who are our age or a little older. Well, I think one of the reasons it took me so long to see it, not in terms of, like, the last few years, I've kind of just been meaning to do it for a while and hadn't this was a perfect opportunity because it was in the theater. But um, by the time I was in high school, I never felt particularly like, ugh, the Matrix. But all the boys were annoying about it. And it was so ubiquitous that you almost feel like you've seen it. Like yeah. when a movie gets to that level, right? I knew all the characters' names, sort of big visuals from the movie everyone was familiar with. I remember a gym teacher at my school dressed up as Trinity one year for Halloween and was like <laughs> leaping around. She was a real character. She was great. And op- like, she didn't have to say anything. She literally like wore sunglasses and like a trench coat. And we were all like, oh, yes, Trinity, right? Like, it just was so familiar to everyone that you kind of felt like you had already experienced it, which I had not. And it was interesting to watch it because some of the stuff did feel unbelievably familiar to me. And then some of it, I was like, wow, I didn't know that was in this movie at all. Like, I, in fact, haven't seen this film. And uh, it was cool to finally actually get the real thing. And having seen Avengers Endgame a week before, to actually view a piece of popular culture that was original. Artistic merit. Right, I was like, oh right, this is what we should be doing. And Big our punishment movie, is but... that the Wachowskis have retired from filmmaking. I mean, I do not know their hearts or minds, 
They are very private people. So none of us may ever know why they've decided to leave the business, but they have. It's not that they are currently in a gap between films, which I think probably some people who are not as obsessed with them as I am may think. They they have closed down their offices and it was not because they'd run out of money. And I think when you've closed down your offices and let all your employees find new jobs, that's a pretty definitive sign that you're done. Yes. Um, they're only in their 50s, but I guess they've decided to move on or focus on their personal lives or something. Who knows? But, you know, they've given us many good films. And I mean, if you start in this period and now the Hollywood has shifted so much. I mean, I assume that Warner Brothers has probably been trying to make them do a DC movie for the past 20 I'm years. I'm certain, yeah. Because they did, if not all, then most of their films with Warner Brothers. And there are a couple of those films where you're like, well, was Warner Brothers kind of bribing them by letting them do fucking Jupiter Ascending in the hopes that they'd do Batman afterwards? It's like, they did not, and they have left. <laughs> Goodbye. <Yes. laughs> They've done their gay Netflix show, and they're out. <laughs> Speaking of Jupiter Ascending, yes. would you like to share with our listeners our, our new new offering yes. to the people. Very exciting. On Patreon, as many of you will already be aware, we have a variety of tiers. Most people are, you know, paying us kind of a dollar or three dollars on Patreon. But if you are someone with an excess of disposable income, you can pay, pay us $100 to do an episode on Jupiter Ascending. We previously did the Star Wars prequel trilogy and Twilight. So the deal is we will do a full-length normal episode, which we release to everyone, where we discuss Jupiter Ascending, a film which obviously both of us have seen multiple times. And also we will do a DVD commentary track, which will be available to Patreon people only, so you can watch the film along with all of our sparkling, effervescent insight. Yes. I have only seen Jupiter Ascending once, in fact. I've seen it, I would say, too many times, because the last time I watched it, I had to watch it for work purposes. So, <laughs> But I'm happy to watch again as a commentator. <laughs> yes, I've only seen it once, but it was a truly beautiful and sublime theatre-going experience. And uh, I would love to do this. The, so hopefully someone will The Channing Tatum role is truly unsurpassed. I agree. The fact that that was committed to film is stunning. I mean... The highlight of the movie, however, Eddie. obviously Eddie. Obviously Eddie. <laughs> Still his finest role. Oh, undoubtedly so. There's much to discuss about Jupiter Ascending, so consider that. You can also, if you so desire, uh, pledge $50 to force us to watch any other movie of your choosing, but not Jupiter Ascending, for which you must pay $100. Uh, next week, we will be discussing uh, The Babadook, which came out a few years ago. Big horror movie that I'm sure many of you have seen. Yes, this movie was like a huge, huge hit. And yes. it's like, it's a, it's a relatively low budget, small Australian film. So it's directed by Jennifer Kent. I believe this was her feature length film debut. It's amazing. I saw it uh, this week for the first time and was absolutely terrified. It is very frightening, um, but highly recommended by all. And Morgan is going to sacrifice herself and watch it too. So, <laughs> Yes, August is kind of a dead month for culture, as most of you, I imagine, will be aware. So we're going to do some kind of random bits and bobs. Yeah, no new releases this month, but we do have The Babadook. Watch that at night sometime to prepare for the episode and yeah check out the matrix again if you haven't watched it in a while or if you haven't ever seen it like me somehow give it a go it's pretty good 
Uh, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gav, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my writing on The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. I am at, tw- at Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is at Twitter on, at overinvestedpod. We are on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.